Hey, it's Ed. I want to thank two brand new podcast supporters before we get started. Kristen Dykeman and Jen Livesey. Thank you guys so much. Kristen and Jen signed up to be Patreon supporters, which means they support the podcast on a monthly basis. If you go to mountainandprairie.com slash support, you can click through to Patreon and see what it's all about. But there are different tiers of support. With each tier comes different rewards. And as you'd expect, all the tiers are themed after Theodore Roosevelt, of course. But I encourage you to go check that out if you're interested. If you're not, no problem. Just keep listening for free. It's free, always will be free. And I really, really appreciate everybody just investing over an hour of their time every other week to listen to this podcast. It really, really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Bryce Andrews. Bryce is a Montana-based rancher, conservationist, and author whose unique set of experiences gives him uncommon insights into the relationship between humans and carnivores in the West. Having worked as a ranch hand, ranch manager, and ranch owner, Bryce understands agriculture and the myriad of challenges faced by producers. As the field director at the nonprofit People and Carnivores, he's gained firsthand knowledge of the predicaments facing large predators in the Rockies. And as an author, he's researched and written extensively about all sides of the issue, most notably in his books Bad Luck Way and his new book Down from the Mountain, which was just published earlier this week. Bryce grew up in Seattle, far removed from ranching, farming, and the arid ruggedness of the Rocky Mountain West. But soon after college, he landed an entry-level job at the 20,000-acre Sun Ranch, located in Montana's spectacular Upper Madison River Valley. On the Sun Ranch, Bryce received a trial-by-fire education in the sometimes problematic relationship between agriculture and wild animals, a relationship that he spent much of his professional career exploring. The latest manifestation of this exploration is Down from the Mountain, an educational, entertaining, and sometimes heartbreaking book that explores specific interactions between grizzly bears and farms in Montana's Mission Valley. I was lucky enough to receive an advanced copy of this book, and I really cannot recommend it enough. If you're familiar with this podcast and the topics that I love to discuss, then you know that Bryce is the perfect guest. He's smart, funny, insightful, and has a real gift for explaining complex, sometimes controversial topics in an engaging way. We talked a lot about Down from the Mountain, discussing grizzlies, farming, and the unique location and topography of the Mission Valley. We talk about Bryce's upbringing in Seattle and what drove him to explore the West after college. We talk about his work with people in carnivores and how his background in agriculture helps him to span the divide between his organization and the farming and ranching communities. Bryce also explains his writing and research process and offers some excellent advice for aspiring authors. And as usual, we spend a lot of time discussing books, authors, and his most powerful outdoor experience. I really do encourage you to find a copy of Down from the Mountain and give it a read. You will not be disappointed. So here you go, Bryce Andrews. When you meet somebody for the first time in like a social setting and they ask you that question that people love to ask, what do you do? How do you answer that? Because I know you do a lot of very varied activities. Well, when I'm asked, yeah, what do you do? What do you do for a living? I I can never give a simple answer because um, I I am a writer. You know, this is my second book, um, but I feel like that's incomplete. And I, you know, I, I have a life of pieces. Um, my fiance and I have a farm um, north of Missoula, uh, which we're in the process of starting up. Uh, I work as the field director for People and Carnivores, a small nonprofit group that works on uh, large carnivore conflict, and I write. So I try to juggle those three things. And, you know, sometimes I get the better of them and sometimes they get the better of me, it seems like. 
<laughs> yeah, you do have a, a, a lot of balls in there, but they're all super interesting, which is exactly why I wanted to talk with you. Um, well, I want to obviously talk a lot about your new book, Down from the Mountain, but I think one of the things that to me makes you so interesting and such a, a cool voice in this world is your background. And so I was thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about your background and then work our way into talking about the book. Um, so you have pretty significant ranching experience, even though you're not a, um, a multi-generational rancher. Can you talk a little bit about your, how you ended up in the ranching world? I, yeah, sure. Um, I definitely started about as far far from ranching as a person could get. I was born and raised in Seattle, uh, in the heart of Seattle, and, and my folks were very involved in Seattle's uh, art scene. My dad was a gallery director, uh, museum director, and my mom, uh, a professional photographer. They're both retired now. Um, but uh, So yeah, I grew up far away from that and really had to find my way to agriculture and to Montana. Uh, and I did that through my, um, uh, the Zentz family and Pat and Susie Zentz are my, they, they call themselves my atheist godparents, um, <laughs> because they, they serve the role of godparents without ever, you know, believing in a deity. Sure. But, um, you know, so Pat is a, he's a, a sculptor and third generation rancher outside of Billings, uh, makes really beautiful, compelling sculptures that translate things like topography and wind into, acoustic signatures. Um, and so I, I grew up, uh, going out there and working for them in the summers. Um, and they were kind enough to let me, you know, dither around for a few weeks here and there and really develop the kind of love for this place and this landscape that have brought me out here and, and really started me down the path that's been the, the, you know, the heart of my professional life, which is um, ranching in, in the more wild and remote corners of the state. Very cool. And so you went to college, um, you know, followed kind of a, a normal path of, of you know, high school, college. And then how long after college did it, did it take you to get to Montana or get to the Rockies? It took, you know, it took about, I guess it really took about a year. You know, I, I was like everybody in college, you know, you're immersed in your circumstances. And, um, I was, I stayed on because I had a girlfriend who was a year behind me and we finally split up. And then I went on sort of a, uh, you know, self pity tour, uh, <laughs> of riding, you know, riding trains around the country and hitchhiking through Mexico and, you know, doing all these things. Um, and just kind of, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have an idea, you know, so many of my friends seem to know, what exactly they wanted to do, um, or failing that they seemed to know that they needed to be on a path. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so they were going into med school or law school or any of those. Um, but I knew that, that that wasn't for me. Um, and so I, I came back from this big exploratory journey and just started casting around. And I, it was like a one in a million thing. I found this job posting on the universe or on Montana state university's, um, website and it was for it was to be a ranch hand on the sun ranch in the uh upper madison valley and so i applied for it and fortunately those um experiences and, and those years of going out in the summertime and, and working hard for uh pat and susie out in billings they were enough um they were just enough to get me hired uh and so i i kind of like you know really <laughs> like a person sliding off of cliff i got like one hand into the agricultural world <laughs> got a good handhold and just hung on like hell because i um you know got out there to the sun ranch and then you know basically was just dunked headlong into a world that bore no resemblance to what i had known as a kid growing up or what i had come to understand in college it was just a place where everything was so immediate and your con your contact with wilderness and with specific wild animals um, it's just so, it's so personal and physical and, um, uh, it was just a, it was a mind blowing thing to me. And so I moved out West from, I moved to Jackson hole from North Carolina a few years into my career and I just hadn't spent much time in the West. And so all of a sudden I went from, 
you know, North Carolina to Wyoming in October when the weather is changing. And I found there were several occasions kind of both funny and scary where I realized like, holy cow, I'm, I'm in over my head here, whether it was, you know, driving in a snowstorm and not really knowing what to do or dealing with livestock, um, just, you know, different, different, very specific memories when I realized, all right, this is a different world out here. And so do you have any memories from your first few months on the Sun Ranch when you thought, holy cow, this is, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is, is different. a different world? Yeah. Well, you know, to come from the Pacific Northwest to the, um, the arid, uh, <laughs> Rocky mountain West, the first thing that you notice is that you begin to shrivel, you know, like all the, all the moisture you've been bathed in every day of your life from the humid air mm-hmm. begins to be sucked out of your body. So, you know, you, you get there and your lips crack and your hands, you know, start to, you know, dry and flake. And you think, my God, how do people survive here? Um, you know, are they just withered husks? And then you see some old rancher go by and you go, Oh yeah, that is what happens. To <laughs> um, and, and so, I mean, you know, from, from the get go, it's hard to miss, how different the place is from the coastal, uh, or, you know, any kind of more clement, you know, place where a person might've grown up. You, you see it's arid, it's austere, you know, you can really see the bones of the land. Um, but in terms of like specific things that happened, um, I do remember, I remember this really well. I was out, uh, running because I go running every day. Um, I was out running after work, you know, maybe, uh, few weeks or a month after I had gotten this job on the Sun Ranch and I was running across this huge, what we called the North End. So it was this just like giant flat expanse that led up to these really steep mountains. Um, and there were always antelope out there, you know, and you would see them and they would see you and they'd go sprinting off to the horizon. Well, I was running along and the, uh, the sun was setting and I was sort of running, uh, I guess I must've been running North and I looked off to the East um, and I could see this uh, antelope running basically on a trajectory that we were converging. You know, so we, it was one of those things where I look ahead and look at my path and look back at the antelope and the antelope's still coming and I keep running and the antelope's still, and we're getting closer and closer and closer. Yeah. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that, you know, he can't, he can't see me. The sun's in his eyes. He doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> know that it's just the two of us in the midst of this giant, flat, empty plane. And yet we're about to collide head on with each other. And as a kid who grew up in the city, I thought, what the, what the hell do you do about something like that? <laughs> and, and so what I settled on is, you know, we were probably like not more than 20 feet away. And this antelope was trotting along and I was running along. I, I turned to him and I was like, Hey, <laughs> and, and the antelope skidded to a stop, did sort of a double take and then ran away faster than I've ever seen an antelope go. <laughs> and, I had this moment where I thought, I thought, holy shit, you know, I I could, you know, if I hadn't said something, we would have collided. I could have grabbed him, you know, (laughs) and, and I realized that I was living in a place where animals, the behavior of wild animals was not a matter of theory. It was not a matter of, you know, speculation. It was my everyday reality. And I think that you know, truly understanding that and understanding the thing, the reciprocal point, which is not just, I can do things to animals, but animals can do things to me. That's a huge part of what I've been writing about for the last 10 years. And a huge part of the story of, of down from the mountain. Do you remember your first encounter with a carnivore on that ranch? Cause you, you mentioned a few stories about going out early in the morning when it's still dark. I mean, is there a certain memory of, of your first kind of not face to face, but close yeah. encounter. Well, I think I'm trying to remember what the actual first one was. Um, I mean, I think the first. Oh, I'll tell you. This is this is funny. This is a good example of the weird skills you have to learn if you're a city boy coming to the ranch. <laughs> I mean, I later had all sorts of close, interesting, terrifying encounters, but the very first one was I was riding packed in a truck cab with James and Jeremy, the two other guys I worked with, both of whom had spent a lot of time working in that landscape. And they knew a lot of things that I didn't. And they also knew how to see in a way that I couldn't. Yep. Um, and we're driving up this road and Jeremy goes, I'll be damned. That's a wolf. And he's looking out into the sagebrush 
and James looks for a second and a, and a couple you know seconds later he goes oh yeah there it goes and I'm looking for the like I'm just staring as hard as I can <laughs> asking them they're pointing out to me where this thing is but I couldn't see it it was I, I, you know, at the time I thought like, are these guys messing with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, is this, is this like, like, okay, got the new guy. Let's just, let's exactly. just mess with him. But that was not the case. I mean, it, it was, it was that my eyes growing up in Western Washington, growing up in Seattle, they had not been accustomed to focus that way, to look at that, you know, to part that distance and to sort out what is a, you know, a grayish animal in gray green sagebrush. You know, and I mean, learning to do that is a process. Um, it, it's one of, you know, it's as much a skill of the work that I've done and continue doing as mending a fence. Yeah, it's cool because it, it is. It's almost like, you know, how fishing guides can see the fish better than, than we ever could and seeing those animals. But in a way, it's it's almost like trying to get this skill back that we're built to have as a species, you know, because it. Uh, 15,000 years ago, that was every human could do that. And now it's this skill that's been kind of lost because we don't use it. And so I imagine there's probably kind of a, a like a primal um, appreciation you get from from developing that skill. Is that is that right? That's absolutely right. I mean, I, the part of what I love so much about the agriculture, practicing agriculture in the context of the wild areas that remain in the West is that it brings out my, you know, it brings out your animal nature. It, it brings out your essential human animal qualities. You know, what you, what you, it, it shows you what you can do. It makes you respect what you can't do. Um, it, it creates feelings, feelings for me of satisfaction, but also humility, which I think is important. So getting that agricultural background, I think is, is so, um, in a lot of ways, it's unique in the in the conservation and environmentalist world, and and so then you you did after working on those ranches for a while, you moved over to humans and carnivores, or or started doing that in addition to some of your ranching work. So how did that transition take place? When did you decide to head over to that organization and start applying some of your your energy th- that way? Yeah, well, I've I've always been oddly, you know, a I've always been a rancher, ranch hand, first ranch manager or ranch hand, then ranch manager, you know, whose actual allegiances lay with the wild things. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like, that was always my dirty little secret, you know, <laughs> push came to shove. I mean, I always did my job in terms of protecting my animals and I did difficult things in the course of doing that. Viol- you know, did violence to, to wildness, wilderness and wild things. But I always felt that affinity particularly with the big carnivores, because there's such a history of such a complicated and difficult history between ranchers, um, wolves and bears, uh, in, in this part of the world. And after, you know, a decade of managing ranches for other people of starting my own grass fed cattle business with a friend in Missoula, I just, I mean, so I came to this point where I had sold my half of the business to my friend, um, and I was living in Missoula, and I realized I had lost, I had lost that connection that I was just describing to you—that immediate and personal connection with with animals—and mm-hmm. and I wanted it back. I needed it back, and um, that was, I think, what sent me looking. You know, sent me down, um, put me in a place where I was ready to make that change because the work with people in carnivores, which is a small uh, nonprofit group that specializes um, on something that I think is really important, which is these very practical in the field projects to reduce conflict between uh, people living in the West and uh, big carnivores. The idea of being able to do that on different people's ranches, to me, it felt like an extension of agriculture rather than something that was in conflict of it. And it also promised to bring my work more in line with my natural affinities. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, in my in my experience, and I'm I'm in Colorado now, but I I did live up in that area for a while, and it seems that the carnivore issue is I've, I've always said, other than water rights, I feel like the carnivore mm-hmm. issue is one that is sure to 
just infuriate people on both sides. And so how did you, how have you learned to kind of walk that line and have productive conversations and find common ground between two sides that can really find themselves at a stalemate pretty, pretty quickly just because of the emotion that's injected into this issue? Have it, has that, have you always been good at that or, or has it been a process of, of learning? Um, kind of want to know for myself because I'm always dealing with these high uh, conflict situations in my, in my conservation work. So any, uh, yeah. any advice you have on that, I'd love to hear. Well, I think it, um, it's difficult. I'm still learning how to, you know, how to negotiate those conversations because they're hard for a good reason, mm-hmm. right? Which is that it's very hard to make your living as a farmer or a rancher in the contemporary West. And that has something to do with carnivores, but it also has to do with larger forces like the economics uh, of agriculture in the modern world and the fact that family farmers and ranchers are competing with massive um, industrial corporations that are producing food. So, you know, like there are a lot of reasons why it's hard to talk about anything that negatively impacts a farmer or a rancher's bottom line. But um, I, I consider myself fortunate because I came, I come to this work out of a decade's worth of working on and then managing ranches. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that's worth something yes. um, to the people who are, are often sitting across the table from me um, because not only, not only can I speak their language, but I mean it. Um, I, I do have, and I will, ar- I will argue this point till I'm blue in the face um, I have as much respect for the people making their living from the land as I do for the wild things on it. Um, and I think that, you know, you mentioned the stalemate that we often find ourselves at. I think one, yeah, I don't know how to get past that stalemate all the time, but I do know that one thing um, always leads to it. And that is failing to respect the needs and the values of the person across the table, mm-hmm. because almost everybody, almost everybody that I'm willing to, everybody that I'm willing to sit down with wants in their head to be a steward of this landscape, mm-hmm. because whether they make their living from it as a conservationist or whether they recreate in it or whether they make their living from it as a rancher, they love this place. Um, and they know that it's, that it's important to retain um, the qualities that make this place so attractive to us, that make us want to live there. And one of those qualities is actually the proximity to wildness. Um, you know, that's the reason why, you know, ranchers who are having a difficult time here, they don't, they don't pick up stakes en masse and move to Kansas where there are no wolves, you know, that they, yep. they, they like being here. Um, and so if you can begin from respecting the person's position, if you can begin from respecting the difficulties in their life, like the fact that, you know, on the shock dairy, which is the subject of down from the mountain or, you know, the, the place where down from the mountain takes, takes place. Um, it's a family dairy. And, you know, you look at the, the guy running that and he's been six months without a day off. Mm-hmm. You have to respect that. And you have to know that something that might seem easy to an outsider, right? Like, oh, you've got a corn crop growing and these bears are destroying the corn crop and it's, and it is destroying them. You know, why don't you build a fence around it? Well, you know, where is he going to get that time and that money when he's already in a position where, you know, to make ends meet, he's basically like having to wear out his cows and wear out his land. You know, I think, I think it's, you have to have that kind of true, um, concern and respect for the predicament of the modern rancher and farmer, if you want to talk about these things. I think that is is so well put. And, you know, for me, like, I understand in theory when you say that, you know, I, I get it and I've dealt with enough ranchers and farmers over the years that I get it. But the reality is I've never done that work and I've never had to get up at three in the morning and, and work, you know, 16, 17 hours manual labor. And so the fact that you have done that, you know, not only do you understand it in theory, but you understand it practically. And I think that that shines through. I mean, it definitely does just in the way you, in the way you talk about it. Um, well, I, let's, let's talk about the book because I think this is a perfect transition. Mm-hmm. I think your experience in agriculture and then your experience on the conservation side of things brought you to this moment where this – in this interesting valley where 
this great story unfolded. Can you just give an overview of the book? I'm sure you're you might be kind of tired of doing that <laughs> doing that by this point, but yeah, can you just give an overview of the book for people who um, are not yet familiar with it? Yeah, I, I can. Um, although this is always something I'm really bad at. You know, it's this is one of those things where um, <laughs> when by the time you finish writing a book. You're so deeply <laughs> mired in it that if somebody asks you to summarize it, you basically just like take some random thread of the story and talk about it incoherently. So I'm going to try not <laughs> to have that happen here. Okay. Um, but this well, book, and I'll, but I'll this interject. Is, I'll say that everybody should, shouldn't worry about summaries. They just need to go buy the book and read it because it's awesome. That's the disclaimer. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Now you can go. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah. My disclaimer is I'm much better at writing them than summarizing. That's why I have to, that's why it takes me 300 pages. Um, uh, no. So here's the thing. Um, the book, the book basically follows uh, two arcs. The first is the arc of the life and death of a single grizzly bear, um, a bear that biologists named Millie, um, as she moves out of the mountains and into the settled floor of the Mission Valley on the Flathead Indian Reservation. Um, the book traces, you know, her arc as she becomes attracted to a human-caused source of food, uh, or, you know, uh, basically a corn crop in the valley floor, and it explores the way that um, the changes that humans have made to landscape affect the life of this bear, and in, in the end um, are her unmaking. Um, I think the parallel line in the story is, is my own um, because I, I came to the Mission Valley as the field director for people and carnivores and undertook to protect this cornfield from bears uh, and protect the bears from the cornfield uh, using an experimental electric fence. So this very minimalist design of electric fence that uh, we, we hoped could keep bears out while um, allowing other uh, large wildlife to move through freely um, and something that we thought could be built for a fraction of the cost of traditional bear fence, which would allow farmers and ranchers to afford to be able to build, to protect these kinds of crops. So the book is about the way the bear's story and my own story collide um, and the entanglement that results from that, because uh, you see, this is where I'll start to just sort of ramble about all the things the book is about, which is, <laughs> You know, it's it's about those two stories, but it's also about the way an individual human being and an individual wild animal can um, become linked and how their stories can converge um, against all probability. Because you think about how big this landscape is and how few of us are on it and how rarely we see these things. But once you do converge like that, there's this bond that's formed. So in this case, you know. I learned Millie's story. I saw her. I saw the damage that was done to her because she was she was actually shot um, with birdshot in the face. And I became entangled with her story and then in the story of figuring out, you know, what will we do with these cubs that, that are orphaned as a result of her wounding and eventual death. And so the story is about this, the way that colliding with a wild animal, particularly a dangerous animal like a grizzly, the way that changes a human being's story and how that um, how that compels us to act in the future. You nailed it. See, I think maybe oh, yeah. you should give up, give up writing and go on a public speaking tour. <laughs> I, I think I would die of exhaustion. I really do. <laughs> if well, you could see me, Ed, if you could see me right now, I'm like I'm leaned over the kitchen table, already <laughs> leaning on one elbow. And sort of like bracing myself up. It's, I don't know why, but these things are always hard for me to get right, and they always tire me out. You nailed it. You, I'm telling you, that was that was perfect. I just just read the book. There's zero way I could have ever described it better. So you're that was awesome. Um, well, can we talk a little bit about the Mission Valley? Because I, I love yeah. reading about it. I love your description of it, and it's one of the few places in Montana where I have not been. And now mm -hmm. it's like at the top of my list that I have to get up there. Um, but I thought, you know, everything from just the, 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 the physical layout of the, of the valley to its position at the edge of this massive stretch of wilderness. Can you just kind of give an overview of, of why that valley is, is so unique? Yeah, it's, it's unique ecologically, I think, because for me, it really blends in a lot of ways, it blends the way the place that I grew up in, which is a place farther west um, and more temperate and more coastal, 
blends it with the place that I've come to love so much as an adult. Um, I mean, this, this valley is definitely of the Rockies. I, you know, I was, I got snowed on this morning. Uh, nice. And, you know, and we've still got, I'm looking out the window here, there's a snowstorm hitting the south end of the Mission Range. Um, and, you know, everything a couple hundred feet above us is pure white. Um, but so ecologically, it blends those two things. It's a place where, you know, it, it feels like the Rockies, and yet occasionally you run into these little, like, damp groves where they're, they're cedar growing and there are ferns growing, these things that I remember from being a kid. So it, it has this really sweet blend of the, like, gorgeous austerity of Montana with something that feels more more sweet and more familiar and uh, more fertile to me. Um, so it's it's interesting ecologically. It's at the, it's at the south end of um, a long, long chain of mountains that stretches northward into Canada through Glacier National Park and the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Um, but it's also unique culturally because this is the, the Flathead Indian Reservation and it's uh, it's the uh, it's the I want to say home, but uh, it's part of the ancestral home, not the whole thing, of the Confederated Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderé tribes. Uh, so management is different because of that, and cult and the culture here is different because it's a reservation uh, that has a very vibrant and strong tribal culture still but it has a lot of non-tribal people living on the reservation because of something called the Dawes Act, which was um, uh, something that went on in the early 20th century, which basically um, split up common lands uh, that was, that were owned by the tribe Mm -hmm. and allocated them to individual tribal tribal members who could then sell them out of the tribe or could lose them uh, to outsiders. Um, And also a lot of the tribal land was just, uh, declared surplus and sold outright. So there's an injustice that brought, um, that minimized some of the tribal claims to certain parts of the reservation and transitioned land into the hands of non-tribal people. So there's, there's that history, but there's also a history there of the, of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes making some really, really important and very cool decisions in terms of how to preserve their language and culture and how to preserve the wilderness uh, that that persists on this reservation. So the tribes actually declared a grizzly, I believe it's called the Grizzly Management Area in mm-hmm. the Mission Mountains Tribal Wilderness. Um, I believe they were the first tribe to designate a tribal wilderness. Um, and they created these rules where in the tribal wilderness, there's an area where for like, you know, three months out of the year, no human being can go. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's to allow, and it specifically was to allow grizzly bears to recover there. And that's the area that's just above this cornfield. Um, and that, so that also shows you the stakes here because as those bears began, began to come into this cornfield at the, uh, at the shock dairy, they're being pulled out of an area that was set aside just for them so that they could function in a wild area. And so that they could function without getting into trouble and getting run over and shot by human beings. So, um, so to, to your point, the the valley is unique because it's part of the Salish homeland, um, and it's also unique because to me it sits on this dividing line, uh, straddles this dividing line between the Rockies and points farther west. Yeah, I, I loved your your all your descriptions of the valley because it, it just seems like it, there's so many different forces at play there that can come together in conflict, and they, and they kind of they do on this one cornfield. Um, one thing that I really enjoyed in the book was your description of grizzlies, and I remember the first time I ever saw a grizzly print, I was taken aback by how human it looked. I mean, it it mm-hmm. almost made my stomach kind of drop when I saw it because it looked so human. And, or there was something about it that reminded me of human print. And and you have some – a lot of – throughout the book, there's it, it seems like you're comparing and contrasting grizzlies and humans. Can you talk a little bit about that connection or that those similarities that you saw between grizzlies and humans? Yeah, I, I can. I mean I've always seen – I've always seen a lot of similarities, particularly between the, the big carnivores in the West and human beings. And I think that's part of why – part of why we have so much trouble with them. Uh, 
you know, like the wolf is a, a pack hunting social predator that uses similar resources that, that we want. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like that, that causes no end of trouble for, for both species involved. And, you know, the bear, I think, I think the bear embodies a different, um, a different part of, of what, yeah, there's a different similarity between a bear and a human being in that, you know, the bear is this, a bear is a generalist, a bear is adaptable. Um, a bear uses the landscape in a really creative way. Um, I don't think that word is overstepping in this context because a bear is moving, you know, at, at every stage in their year, they're fig- they're, they're, they're questioning the landscape and finding this really complex path through. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, certainly there are physiological similarities. You look at a bear, uh, a, a bear paw print and you can see your foot in yeah. there. You know, it's, you can see your foot with claws. So you can, you know, you can, you can believe that they're, you, if you feel related when you see one, um, you see a skin bear, um, you, you see a bear on its hind legs, you pick up a dead bear and you're aware of how, how the basic plan <laughs> is translated from human to ursine. Sure. Um, but then there's also this really phenomenal thing that happens, I, I believe, with their eyes. Um, there's something about looking at a bear in the eyes, in the wild. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, I don't know quite how to describe it. I, I tried in the book. Um, but there's a connection that exists because of the way a bear looks back and just like a human does makes a decision. You know, there's a a decision is being made because a bear might run or a bear might charge or a bear might just stand there and let you walk by. Um, that agency, that ability to choose that like, um, unquestionable sense of making a decision. I think that's part of what we recognize in bears. Yeah, that that's great. Um, and you know, I've I've never looked one in the eyes, so I can't speak. But I, I clearly remember the passage that you're you're talking about, and it's. Um, I look forward to that opportunity sometime as long as it's somewhat safe <laughs> um, <laughs> on my terms. Um, so uh, one of the things that I I really loved about the book was, and it was kind of unexpected to me. You know, the, the story of being scared of bears out in the middle of the wilderness, you know, pe- that's been written about many times. But mm-hmm. you're able to write very clearly and effectively about being scared of these bears or, or the, the tension that comes from being in close proximity to bears. But it's what to, seemed to me in a very unlikely place, a cornfield. You know, that seems oh, yeah. pretty uh, civilized and run of the mill. I mean, everywhere you look, you know, there are cornfields. And, and here you are having this massive adventure just walking along the edge of a cornfield so as a <laughs> as a writer how did you how did you approach that i mean how trying to figure out a way to tell that effectively because it's it's kind of a common it's kind of a, a, a out there concept if you think about it um not many people would have ever considered that that you could be that scared next to a civilized what should be a civilized cornfield yeah. you know yeah well yeah i mean i think i think that's a very fair question how did i make a cornfield interesting um, you know, that's one way to think about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I write a lot about mundane things, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I've, I've written, I've written a lot about fencing, uh, sure. you know, in, in both in my first book and, and also in this one. Um, and you know, sometimes, sometimes I see some humor in that. <laughs> um, so, but sometimes I look at, see, I, I look at these things, I like the the fact that something mundane or something that seems familiar can be revealed as strange and all of a sudden interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing about that cornfield is that I, you know, once I knew, so I, I worked alongside that cornfield all all summer. First in the building of the fence, which was about two miles long, and then in the process of trying to keep bears out as they basically like 
tried every inventive thing you could ever imagine to get in. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they, like one would crawl under, you know, the, a ditch would go, go dry and one of them would find it and crawl under in like, you know, the eight hours after the ditch went dry. Um, you know, they were very good at getting in. So once they were in there, the presence of those wild animals, the presence of wildness in that domesticated thicket, which is really what a cornfield is, it totally changed it. And I was so struck by that, you know, to, to walk along the edge of it and know, you know, so many things, you know, there are grizzlies in there, you know, they're not running out and attacking you, (laughs) you know, so, you know, you're essentially being spared. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that the thing that, that almost more than anything else stands in for domesticity, which is like a planted cornfield has been, um, overtaken by wild things. Um, like you have all these complicated feelings and I have those complicated feelings while I'm walking around working on this stuff and the armature speaking, speaking as a writer, like the armature story that, that I hang them on, it's the mundane tasks of doing work because work has always been how I understand landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, that just has to do with the path that I've taken to get here as a, a rancher and a writer. And, um, it's the only way I know to look this deeply at things that otherwise might seem simple. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I think that, you know, obviously your your skills as a writer are what bring this whole thing to life and what allow you to tell this story in, in this very, very unique story about this unique landscape. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about your your career as a writer. When did writing become a part of your life, a, a serious part of your life? Has it always been there? I think it's always been there to some degree. I mean, I always, I really liked writing and I, I like telling stories. I've always liked telling stories a lot, but it became serious on the Sun Ranch. Actually it became serious after, um, the pivotal, the thing that forms the pivotal moment in Bad Luck Way, my first book, which was having to shoot a wolf that was killing cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed to process that somehow. Um, I needed I needed to think about it more seriously than I had thought about anything before. And I have, I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing on the whole, but I've got a pretty bad memory. Um, I need to make notes. I need to commit things to paper if I want to be able to reproduce them accurately. And so in the months that followed that incident with the wolf, um, in the months of feeling kind of brokenhearted and guilty about it, I, I lived in this little bunkhouse by myself on the ranch after everybody had left. I stayed on and was sort of the, the winter guy, you know. Um, and I had all of this time to think and to write. And I found some kind of satisfaction and some kind of um, closure from something that was really hard for me in that. And I think that's the beginning of me taking it seriously. Are there any writers that over your life have been important or influential to you? And it could be writers that you know, or just writers that you've admired their work from a distance. Any, anybody that that comes to mind there? Yeah. I mean, I remember being extremely, yes, lots of people. Um, I will just name a few. I, um, there was something that I really liked about, um, Aldo Leopold's Mm -hmm. Sand County Almanac early on. And I think it was the same, that there's a similar combination of, of work and thought in there, you know, that, that there's, it's, it's somebody whose professional life is putting them in, in relationship, it's putting them in relation to the natural world in a way that they're not quite comfortable with, Yeah. you know? And, and so I think I was really curious about that because even before I was a rancher, that, that just intrigued me. Um, I, I have, you know, there's a book, um, uh, James Galvin's The Meadow mm-hmm. that I read that I, that was really important to me. Um, a couple of my friends, uh, David Duncan and yep. Chris Dombrowski, who uh, you just had on, had Chris on, and I would urge you to try to get David to come on the the show too. Oh, I'd love um, that. Yeah, but you know, David's working on this massive. Um, He's somebody who I respected at a distance as a writer before we knew each other, but also um, somebody uh, like Chris. We were talking about this before the show, but somebody who's really um, generous with the way they approach other people's work. Yes. Uh, 
So, you know, like David's working on this massive um, masterpiece, this huge, huge book called Sun House right now, which is, um, I think, I mean, I don't, the last thing I want to do is <laughs> summarize somebody else. Like, that's not fair. <laughs> but I, I think it's a way, um, I think it's a way of making sense of a lot of really complicated realities in the West as it exists today. And I, I find myself drawn to work like that work that is um, insightful and also charitable to its characters because I see, I see there being enough problems in, in the modern West uh, that I, I want, I want it all to begin from a position of respect. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. Uh, It makes perfect sense. And, And a note about David is that his name has come up several times from several different writers as somebody who was at first a uh, you know a, a positive influence from a distance, and then turned out to be very very helpful spe- on specific projects they were working with. And he just sounds like such a, a generous guy. I mean, he's obviously an unbelievably talented writer, but he's he, just on this you know little podcast. He, his name continues to come up as somebody who has mentored all these great writers, and that's that's refreshing to hear. You know, when you when you when you meet a hero and they turn out to even be better than you expected, you know? <laughs> right. We just, we can't let him know of it because it'll go to his head. <laughs> okay. It's the secret is safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's where you keep a safe secret is on a recorded broadcasted podcast. Yes. A massive podcast on the yeah. internet. <laughs> yes. The internet well, he's too busy writing. He's too busy writing this masterwork. He shouldn't be playing around on the internet anyway. Um, that's right. So as far as writing goes, um, is it for you to, to actually accomplish it? Is it, is it super hard or have you gotten to a point where it's, it's hard, but you enjoy it? Or what is your, what is your relationship with writing? Cause I know for some writers who are even the best of the best of the best have been doing it for 50 years. It's still a complete ass whipping when they sit down at the keyboard. And so where do you fall in that? Is it, does it just flow every time you, <laughs> you sit down or is it an ass whipping or somewhere in the middle? Oh. Yeah, man, I just sit down and it flows, just flows. every time without exception. <laughs> That's a, oh, no wonder it all makes sense. Now. No, no, no. Uh, it's yeah, it's hard. Um, it's a hard thing to do well, yeah. and you have to be constantly on guard to make sure that you are still doing it well. Um, I, you know, I, I I really struggle with it when people describe writing as like their curse, their noble curse, because (laughs) I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. Yeah. You know, I I think, you know, if you're, if you're bringing your full attention to something like that and you are, um, you know, you, you believe in yourself enough to think that you can do it in a way that will matter to somebody else. Um, it's really satisfying. It's hard, but it's satisfying. Um, and for me, I just have to make a point of, not not giving up on it when it feels like I've run out or something like that. You just have to keep, it's like anything. It, it just, you have to keep working at it even after the point when it's fun. Oh yeah, definitely. And there was a part in the book, I remember, I'm just remembering now where you're out there and, and you're, you feel like there are bears nearby, but you talk about this, this focus that comes over you and it's not like you're, you're, you're freaking out scared but you're not relaxed at all, but it's just this, it kind of brings everything into focus. And mm-hmm. obviously writing is not a, or it hopefully is not a life and death kind of thing on a daily basis. But I feel like if done correctly, it's hard enough that it, it forces you into this focus that is just hard to get in normal modern day human life. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a really, that's actually a really good point because I was just, yeah, it makes me think about the fact that there are very few endeavors or tasks in which I really get into them. And then I look up again and hours have passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very best days of working on writing are like that. And there were moments at the cornfield with bears in it and, and being around dangerous animals that require that level of focus. Um, there were moments where time passed that way. And, I think maybe that's just what complete presence in a moment feels like. Um, and yeah, so those, I think those, there's some relation there for sure. I feel like the only, there are few activities where I can get that. I think writing is one, even though I'm not a good writer, but when I can finally focus in, I think 
obviously any being scared or, or wildlife, but like surfing, I think can bring it out. Rock climbing, can oh, bring yeah. it out. long, really, really, really long running. You can kind of get in a, in a zone, but I feel like that's what it's all about. And that's, that's even though it's, and all those, all those are hard things that kind of can kick your ass, but, but the end result is this flow state. I think that comes out of it. That is just invaluable. It's kind of what I live for really. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny cause we, we make so much, we make so much use of, our conscious mind. Um, but you know, that makes me wonder if animals are living there most of the time or all the time. Um, I think they probably are. I think, you know, and, most of the time, maybe not all domesticated animals, but, um, yeah. wild animals, definitely. I, I would think. Right. And, and I mean, it's a funny thing that we're so we're Jones and so hard to get shut of our consciousness. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, that kind of immersion, I mean, I, I wrote about, I was fascinated with this and wrote about it, the the way that proximity to grizzlies like that can both, it can sharpen certain parts of, of your mind. It can dull others. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that an example of the, the honing would be, you know, walking along the edge of that stand with every fiber of your being concentrated on whether or not there's movement in there. Yeah. But, but then there can also be this sort of, I mean, if you spend too much time and become too entangled with that situation, there's a, there's a hypnotic quality about it that, you know, it's the same way, a, you know, it's like a little bird looking at a cat coming up on it, you know, where you're sort of, <laughs> you're drawn toward the danger, just the way, you know, humans are drawn to the edge of cliffs or, you know, drawn to, you know, you know, pitch themselves off of boats at night or, you know, like the, there's that impulse toward the void that, I guess is just your brain, you know, trying on scenarios to remind you that it's scary or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, I just, I'm, I'm still blown away by how, how many weird feelings a person feels when they spend a, a season in and around a cornfield full of grizzly bears. Oh, I can't imagine it. I mean, I, I've talked about this with several people on the podcast who do intense work. Like I've, there was a guy who was a smoke jumper and just different pretty intense lines of work. And whenever I've done something intense, like a, like a multi-week climbing trip or whatever, when I get back, I have such a hard time dealing with normal life. Like, like all the stuff that is normal, like paying your cell phone bill or emails and stuff, it just drives me insane. And it just seems so pointless and dumb when, you know, a few weeks, a few days before your whole goal was just don't die. Yeah. (laughs) And so, I mean, have you run into that at all? You know, when you've, been out, you know, working on a ranch is, is the real deal. And it requires kind of a shift from normal, modern ways of thinking. Have you, when you come out of that, um, is it hard to deal with normal life or, or have you figured out techniques for doing that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely gotten into trouble on occasion because of that weird disconnect yeah. because, you know, like when you, if you, if you recalibrate yourself to a life where, you know, on a daily basis, you might be asked to kill an animal or, you know, you, you're like, I don't know, snub a horse off to something if it's acting up or like, you know, you, just all these, you're asked to do these things that are like at once dangerous, sometimes cruel, um, completely necessary. And where like the standards by which they're judged are completely unsubjective, right? Yeah. Like either, like either you hit it in the heart or you didn't, you yeah. know, either yeah. you know, all the, like there are these sort of like basic qualities that let you know whether you did it right or wrong. You know, like either the cattle got from one pasture to the other or they're scattered out on the highway. It's one of those two options. Yeah. You know, you come back from that. Um, cause I've done a lot of kind of weird versions of managing ranches. You know, like I, I've, I've worked for a nonprofit group. I've worked for, um, yeah, I managed a ranch for a nonprofit group. I, you know, managed ranches for, uh, a couple of like wealthy absentee people. I've consulted on ranch. You know, like I've been in these positions where you have to walk right out of that world and like into a meeting room. Yeah. And 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 you have to discuss. You know, you, you might have to talk about you know protocols, or you might have to talk about something that feels so abstract and so unnecessary and so irrelevant to the work that you were just doing that it's really tempt it's really tempting to be impatient in that situation yes and to act and to and to say like you know what like you know the the childish impulse is that of like what the hell do you know about it yeah and i think like 
I mean, I'm, I'm offering that as sort of like a, a weird, <laughs> funny personal anecdote, but also I think that that's, you know, some of the disconnect, and this goes back to this idea of respecting the actual position of the person across the table, like in our, in our present political moment and cultural moment, there, this disconnect exists where, you know, people, people walk from one world into another and they don't understand the importance of what's being presented to them from, from something that feel from a, from a world that's really for, yep. you know, because when I walked into that meeting, usually those people weren't just wasting my time. That's how I would have characterized it at the <laughs> time. But, but like they, they were operating, you know, they, they were doing their best, you know, they were, they were trying in some way. And so I don't, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, except to say that it's caused me difficulty and I feel like it's not just because I get it and they don't. I know exactly what you mean because I've been there before. I mean, I I remember being gone on some trip and then a few, you know, maybe three days later, I was sitting in a conference room wearing a suit, listening to somebody talk about rental rates for a, you know, a, a office building in downtown Washington D.C. And I was like, "What the hell is going? This is the biggest bunch of bullshit." <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a much better example. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And, yeah. No, and it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, so one more question about writing. So obviously people, th- th- there are so many people that would love to have a book published or, or make a career of writing. Do you, and I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but what is some advice you have for aspiring writers, people that would maybe not even want to do it full time, but just, you know, make, make writing more a part of their life. Yeah, I um, I guess I would first to ask, are you sure you want that advice from a guy with three jobs? Um, <laughs> that might be the part of the answer, too. <laughs> yeah, and maybe it is the answer. I mean, actually, that, yeah, if I had to give a serious answer, um, it would be, and this would be particularly directed at people who want to write nonfiction, um, like I do. It's that. I write best from experience. Mm-hmm. I write, I have to know things very intimately and deeply. And I, I, so far, other people can do this, but so far I cannot write to my satisfaction without, without living through the story in a, in a way that's very intimate. Um, so for people who, who want to do this um, and do it seriously, uh, I guess I would just say, try to live a life that strikes you as interesting enough that you would want to write about it. That's great advice. I think that's great. I mean, you, there's no, there is no um, substitute for, you know, have being in the middle of it, having good stories. I mean, otherwise I don't, I don't know how you would, how you'd be able to write about it effectively. Even if you were a wonderful writer, if you're writing nonfiction, you got to be in the middle of it. You know, you got to be doing cool stuff. And I don't know, and and what I think is cool, somebody else may not think is cool, but but it's. I mean, I think you just that that experience is invaluable. Right. Um, it's either either that or you have to do research. God forbid. Yeah. No so. thanks on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather I, rather I get that, chased by I, grizzly bears. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I would. Oh hell yeah! Um, then sit in the bottom of a library. Oh, no. Well, yeah. But you know the the thing about it is like I I guess I say that kind of tongue in cheek because you do you end up having. Even if you're writing from life, you will, if you're doing it right, you're going to be researching it and you're going to be looking. You have to follow the strands. You have to follow the strands to their ends if you can. I mean, that's because if, if you misstep, if you if you inadvertently write something that doesn't have any truth in it, your work will really it will suffer. It's a fatal flaw. Sure. Yeah. And speaking of that, I think you you do an unbelievable unbelievably great job in this book of, you know, it's obviously this, this great personal story, but I mean, you come away from the book with so much, so many hard facts, or I came away with the book, so many hard facts about grizzlies and predators. And there's, you know, it's, it's your story, but it's you know, throughout is, is full of all this just super interesting information. And yeah, it, it is very, very clear that you spent a lot of time researching that. Um, the, the story is one thing, but those, those interesting facts, which I just love. I underlined the hell out of that book because there's so many things I need to remember. But um, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, so well, I got I got some kind of quick questions that I ask people at sure. the end because yeah. we're already coming up on an hour, which is crazy. I could 
definitely keep this going for like three more hours. But um, <laughs> so your, your listen, your listeners don't want you to. <laughs> I'd beg to differ on that. I think they, they, they. Uh, as we were talking about before we started recording, people were super pumped that you're going to come on. So, um, but first question. Do you have any favorite books? And this is hard, just picking one or two, but favorite books about the American West? Yes, I do. Um, I do. I'm really going to struggle to name them right now because I, I, when I try to do this, I always, I always get it wrong. I don't know how many. I mean, there are books that are explicitly about the West, and yeah. there are books that tell us a lot about the West. Like there's uh, like Paul Shepard's Coming Home to the Pleistocene. Uh-huh. Have you ever run across that one? I've heard of it, but um, I've never read it. It's I, I read it I read it in, as an undergrad. Oh wow! And it was um, it was in this it was in a, a class a writing class. Um, but he's a you know he's a deep thinker about the ways that the human like the human relationship with their natural context. Um, you know how basically how that kind of grew out of what we are as an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that tells you a lot about the West. I'll get, uh, this was supposed to be a short answer. So I would say I'd refer you back to that book, the meadow. Yes. Um, yes. I would say, uh, there are a couple I've read recently that I really, um, uh, angle of repose. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, uh, Oh, Deborah, Deborah Magpie Erling's book, uh, Perma red. I read that recently. And I think there's a lot you can learn about the West from that. Um, cool. And yeah, I, I could, I could go on, but, um, no, those are great. You know, I I can't, I can't do the top five thing very well. It is hard. I mean, it's, it's because I ask people these questions and I don't have any answers to them. So it's kind of unfair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I, I, I could, I could think about it and get back with a better answer. No, these are great. And for people listening, I'll have links to, to all these in the um, episode notes so you can click through, um, after you buy, Bryce's book first. Well, here's a good one. I think you'll you'll probably have a very interesting answer to this. When you think about all of your experiences outdoors in pretty intense landscapes, is there one kind of moment that comes to mind as as a very powerful outdoor experience? And that could be scary. It could just be. It could be funny. It could be interesting. I mean, like that thing where you almost ran into the antelope. That's, that's pretty yeah. interesting. But is there, is there one kind of powerful experience that stands out in your mind? Yeah. I'll, I mean, this is one I've never really talked about in public before, but a long time ago, a few years ago, I was, um, uh, I was climbing in the Madison range, um, hiking with a friend and we, it was, it was, uh, I think it was early, I think it was early spring. So there was still a lot of snowpack. Yeah. And we worked our way up to this ridge, you know, tromping up through these series of really steep uh, ravines and stuff. And we were on top of this ridge walking along. And all of a sudden there was this huge clump, like just thumping noise. And um, a slab avalanche let go right at our feet, that three foot thick slab, and ripped down the mountain, you know, tearing out trees and completely uh, obscuring our trail from coming up. Wow. And... I I just I think about that sometimes because I think about how easy and pointless it would have been to die in that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a very powerful experience that has stuck with me. Yeah, that's very powerful. That's yeah, I would be thinking about that too. That's that's wild. So next to the last question, um, the people that listen to this podcast they they just love the American West in in one way or the other, whether that's through conservation like what you and I do, whether through literature, through athletics, you know, spending time outside, um, knowing all that you know and all that you've seen and, you know, you're, you're being in the trenches in these conflicts between humans and carnivores and conservation and ranching. Is there, you know, when you think about it, all the wisdom you've accumulated, do you have any words of wisdom to, to offer to people listening to this or maybe a request to make of the people listening to this podcast? Uh, I would say have fewer children. That's a good one. Uh, that was, that's a good start. <laughs> there are, um, and I would expand upon that to say that in you know in the West right now, which is a landscape I love dearly and deeply and will for the rest of my life, um, we have we're at a very crucial a crucial moment um, in that we have in the next several decades the opportunity to preserve 
corridors of habitat between our last remaining wilderness areas. Mm -hmm. Um, we have to do that. We have to do that by every means that we can think of, you know, (laughs) uh, zoning, uh, shame, um, (laughs) whatever it takes, we need to preserve these corridors, these strips, you know, these river corridors and, and passageways of, of undeveloped, um, unfragmented land. And it could, this could be land that's used for ranching and farming. Agriculture goes well with this. Um, but, but residential de- development does not. We need to preserve those chunks of land between our last major wilderness areas. And if we don't do it in the next few decades, it's not going to get done. And those places will be gobbled up because we collectively have been very bad at, we've been very bad at collective restraint so far. Um, And we need, as a culture out here, we need to exhibit collective restraint, preserve those places, and allow animals like grizzlies to thrive into the long future out here. I think that's a great way to end it, and I agree with everything you said. Um, So how can people connect with you, uh, get the book? I think you kind of keep a low profile on social media, which is exactly why you're able to accomplish as much as you you do. But how can people connect? Yeah. By, by low profile, I mean I'm, I'm incompetent at it. But yeah, <laughs> um, here's how people could connect. Um, I would say, uh, you know, the book is available all over. I would love it if people went to a local bookstore and bought that. Yep. Um, the, I think one way that you can support some of the work uh, that's described in that book is to support people in carnivores. It's a small nonprofit group. There are four employees um, and we do a lot of good work in this part of the world. So people, people and carnivores.org is a place where you can go and learn more about that work. Um, but also, you know, I can be found, I do nominally have a Facebook page. Um, but, but uh, mostly, I mean, if you want to get in touch with me, write to me, my email address is there on the people in carnivores website. So write me a note. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all you do, first of all, and for for your great work writing and your great work in conservation, but for taking the time during a, a I know is a very busy time. But this was this was really fun. I hope I can meet you in person one of these days. Well, I, I hope so too. Um, I'll look you up if I come down to Colorado. Uh, thank you, Ed, for having me. It's been a really good conversation. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.